Chapter Sixteen of the Gold Hunters by J. D. Borthwick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Chapter Sixteen: A Band of Wanderers. I returned to Downeyville the next day, and as the weather was now getting rather cold and disagreeable, and I did not wish to be caught quite so far up in the mountains by the rainy season i began to make my way down the river again to more accessible diggings on leaving i took a trail which kept along the bank of the river for some miles before striking up to the mountain ridge immediately below the town the mountain was very steep and smooth and round this wound the trail at the height of three or four hundred feet above the river it was a mere beaten path so narrow that two men could not walk abreast while there was hardly a bush or a tree to interrupt one's progress in rolling down from the trail to the river when trains of pack mules met at this place they had the greatest difficulty in passing the down train being of course unloaded had to give way to the other the mules understood their own rights perfectly well those loaded with cargo kept sturdily to the trail while the empty mules scrambled up the bank where they stood still till the others had passed it not unfrequently happened however that a loaded mule got crowded off the trail and rolled down the hill this was always the last journey the poor mule ever performed the cargo was recovered more or less damaged but the remnants of the deceased mules on the rocks below remained as a warning to all future travelers. It was only a few days before that a man was riding along here when, from some cause, his mule stumbled and fell off the trail. The mule, of course, went as a small contribution to the collection of skeletons of mules which had gone before him, and his rider would have shared the same fate had he not fortunately been arrested in his progress by a bush the only object in his course which could possibly have saved him the trail after passing this spot kept more among the rocks on the riverside and though it was rough travelling the difficulties of the way were beguiled by the numbers of miners camps through which one passed and in observing the different varieties of mining operations being carried on for miles the river was borne along in a succession of flumes in which were set innumerable water-wheels for working all sorts of pumps and other contrivances for economizing labor the bed of the river was alive with miners and here and there in the steep banks were rows of twenty or thirty tunnels out of which came constant streams of men wheeling the dirt down to the riverside to be washed in their long toms at goodyear's bar which is a place of some size the trail leaves the river and ascends a mountain which is said to be the worst in that part of the country and for my part i was quite willing to believe it was i met several men coming down who were all anxious to know if they were near the bottom i was equally desirous to know if i was near the top for the forest of pines was so thick 
that looking up one could only get a glimpse between the trees of the zigzag trail far above about halfway up the mountain at a break in the ascent i found a very new log cabin by the side of a little stream of water it bore a sign about as large as itself on which was painted the florida house and as it was getting dark and the next house was five miles further on i thought i would take up my quarters here for the night the house was kept by an italian or an italian as he is called across the atlantic he had a yankee wife with a lot of children and the style of accommodation was as good as one usually found in such places i was the only guest that night and as we sat by the fire smoking our pipes after supper my host who was a cheerful sort of fellow became very communicative he gave me an interesting account of his california experiences and also of his farming operations in the states where he had spent the last few years of his life then going backwards in his career he told me that he had lived for some years in england and scotland and spoke of many places there as if he knew them well i was rather curious to know in what capacity such an exceedingly dingy-looking individual had visited all the cities of the kingdom but he seemed to wish to avoid cross-examination on the subject so i did not press him he became intimately connected in my mind however with sundry plaster of paris busts of napoleon the duke of wellington sir walter scott and other distinguished characters i could fancy i saw the whole collection of statuary on the top of his head and felt very much inclined to shout out images to see what effect it would have upon him in the course of the evening he asked me if i would like to hear some music saying that he played a little on the italian fiddle i said i would be delighted particularly as i did not know the instrument the only national fiddle i had ever heard of was the caledonian and i trusted this instrument of his was a different sort of thing but i was very much amused when it turned out to be nothing more or less than a genuine orthodox hurdy-gurdy it put me more in mind of home than anything i had heard for a long time at the first note of course the statuary vanished and was replaced by a vision of an unfortunate monkey in a red coat while my friend's extensive travels in the united kingdom became very satisfactorily accounted for and i thought it by no means unlikely that this was not the first time i had heard the sweet strains of his italian fiddle he played several of the standard old tunes but hurdy-gurdy music is of such a character that a little of it goes a great way and i was not sorry when a couple of strings snapped to the great disgust however of my friend for he had no more with which to replace them hurdy-gurdy player or not he was a very entertaining agreeable fellow i only hope all the fraternity are like him perhaps they are if one only knew them and attain ultimately to such a respectable position in life dignifying their instruments with the name of italian fiddles 
and reserving them for the entertainment of their particular friends. I was on my way to Slate Range, a place some distance down the river, but the next day I only went as far as Oak Valley, traveling the last few miles with a young fellow from one of the southern states, whom I overtook on the way. He had been mining, he told me, at Downeyville, and was now going to join some friends of his at a place some thirty miles off. At supper he did not make his appearance, which I did not observe, as there were a number of men at table, till the landlord asked me if that young fellow who arrived with me was not going to have any supper, and suggested that perhaps he was strapped, dead broke, and glacé, without a cent in his pocket. I had not inferred anything of the sort from his conversation, but on going out and asking him why he did not come to supper, he reluctantly admitted that the state of his finances would not admit of it. I told him, in the language of Mr. Toots, that it was of no consequence, and made him come in, when he was most unceremoniously lectured by the rest of the party, and by the landlord particularly, on the absurdity of his intention of going supperless to bed, merely because he happened to be dead broke, getting at the same time some useful hints how to act under such circumstances in future from several of the men present, who related how, when they had found themselves in such a predicament, they had, on frankly stating the fact, been made welcome to everything. To be dead broke was really, as far as a man's immediate comfort was concerned, a matter of less importance in the mines than in almost any other place. There was no such thing as being out of employment where every man employed himself, and could always be sure of ample remuneration for his day's work. But notwithstanding the want of excuse for being strapped, it was very common to find men in that condition. There were everywhere numbers of lazy, idle men, who were always without a dollar, and others reduced themselves to that state by spending their time and money on claims which, after all, yielded them no return, or else gradually exhausted their funds in traveling about the country and prospecting, never satisfied with fair average diggings, but always having the idea that better were to be found elsewhere. Few miners located themselves permanently in any place, and there was a large proportion of the population continually on the move. In almost every place I visited in the mines I met men whom I had seen in other diggings, some men I came across frequently, who seemed to do nothing but wander about the country, satisfied with asking the miners in the different diggings how they were making out, but without ever taking the trouble to prospect for themselves. Coin was very scarce, what there was being nearly all absorbed by the gamblers, who required it for convenience in carrying on their business. Ordinary payments were made in gold dust, every store being provided with a pair of gold scales in which the miner weighed out sufficient dust from his buckskin purse to pay for his purchases. 
in general trading gold dust was taken at sixteen dollars the ounce but in the towns and villages at the agencies of the various san francisco bankers and express companies it was bought at a higher price according to the quality of the dust as it was more or less in demand for remittance to new york the express business of the united states is one which has not been many years established and which was originally limited to the transmission of small parcels of value on the discovery of gold in california the express houses of new york immediately established agencies in san francisco and at once became largely engaged in transmitting gold dust to the mint in philadelphia and to various parts of the united states on account of the owners in california as a natural result of doing such a business they very soon began to sell their own drafts on new york and to purchase and remit gold dust on their own account they had agencies also in every little town in the mines where they enjoyed the utmost confidence of the community receiving deposits from miners and others and selling drafts on the atlantic states in fact besides carrying on the original express business of forwarding goods and parcels and keeping up an independent post office of their own they became also to all intents and purposes bankers and did as large an exchange business as any legitimate banking firm in the country the want of coin was equally felt in san francisco and coins of all countries were taken into circulation to make up the deficiency as yet a mint had not been granted to california but there was a government assay office which issued a large octagonal gold piece of the value of fifty dollars a roughly executed coin about twice the bulk of a crown piece while the greater part of the five ten and twenty dollar pieces were not from the united states mint but were coined and issued by private firms in san francisco silver was still more scarce and many pieces were consequently current at much more than their value a quarter of a dollar was the lowest appreciable sum represented by coin and any piece approaching it in size was equally current at the same rate a franc passed for a quarter of a dollar while a five franc piece only passed for a dollar which is about its actual worth as a natural consequence of francs being thus taken at twenty five per cent more than their real value large quantities of them were imported and put into circulation in eighteen fifty four however the bankers refused to receive them and they gradually disappeared there was wonderfully little precaution taken in conveying the gold down from the mountains and yet although nothing deserving the name of an escort ever accompanied it i never knew an instance of an attack upon it being attempted on several occasions i saw the express messenger taking down a quantity of gold from downeyville he and another man both well mounted were driving a mule loaded with leathern sacks containing probably two or three hundred pounds weight of gold they were well armed of course but a couple of robbers had they felt so inclined 
might easily have knocked them both over with their rifles in the solitude of the forest without much fear of detection bad as california was it appeared a proof that it was not altogether such a country as was generally supposed when large quantities of gold were thus regularly brought over the lonely mountain trails with even less protection than would have been thought necessary in many parts of the old world from oak valley i went down to slate range with an american who was anxious i should visit his camp there after climbing down the mountainside we at last reached the river which here was confined between large masses of slate rock turning in its course and disappearing behind bold rocky points so abruptly that seldom could more of the length than the breadth of the river be seen at a time an hour's scrambling over the sharp-edged slate rocks on the side of the river brought us to his camp or at least the place where he and his partners camped out which was on the bare rocks in a corner so overshadowed by the steep mountain that the sun never shone upon it it was certainly the least luxurious habitation and in the most wild and rugged locality i had yet seen in the mines on a rough board which rested on two stones were a number of tin plates pannikins and such articles of table furniture while a few flat stones alongside answered the purpose of chairs scattered about as was usual in all miners camps were quantities of empty tins of preserved meats sardines and oysters empty bottles of all shapes and sizes innumerable ham bones old clothes and other rubbish round the blackened spot which was evidently the kitchen were pots and frying pans sacks of flour and beans and other provisions together with a variety of cans and bottles of which no one could tell the contents without inspection for in the mines everything is perverted from its original purpose butter being perhaps stowed away in a tin labelled fresh lobsters tea in a powder canister and salt in a sardine box there was nothing in the shape of a tent or shanty of any sort it was not required as a shelter from the heat of the sun as the place was in the perpetual shade of the mountain and at night each man rolled himself up in his blankets and made a bed of the smoothest and softest piece of rock he could find this part of the river was very rich the gold being found in the soft slate rock between the layers and in the crevices my friend and his partners were working in a wing dam in front of their camp and the river being pushed back off one half of its bed rushed past in a roaring torrent white with foam a large water wheel was set in it which worked several pumps and a couple of feet above it lay a pine tree which had been felled there so as to serve as a bridge the river was above thirty feet wide and the tree not more than a foot and a half in diameter was in its original condition perfectly round and smooth and was moreover kept constantly wet with the spray from the wheel 
which was so close that one could almost touch it in passing if one had happened to slip and fall into the water he would have had about as much chance of coming out alive as if he had fallen before the paddles of a steamer and any gentleman with shaky legs and unsteady nerves had he been compelled to pass such a bridge would most probably have got astride of it and so worked his passage across in the mines however these pine log crossings were such a very common style of bridge that everyone was used to them and walked them like a rope dancer in fact there was a degree of pleasant excitement in passing a very slippery and difficult one such as this end of chapter sixteen